Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Judges 6, 11 to 28. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abizet, I'm so sorry, Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Uh, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, If now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat and from an ephah of flour, he made bread without yeast, put in the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. And then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it stands in Oprah of the Abiezrites. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's head, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished, with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. Can we please welcome David to the stage? Well, morning, everyone. Well, it's clearly one of those mornings. Um, I couldn't find my microphone. I have been preaching uh, for more years than I'm going to let on right now. I have never before uh, got up to preach and found that not all my notes are present. So, um, So... Halfway through, I will transfer to my phone and then back to my notes. So just bear with me. 
uh, if it's not quite as smooth as one would like it to be this morning. Um, but funnily enough, uh, in terms of today's sermon, I've really felt uh, that as I'm preaching, I should be really, really listening to the Lord, particularly uh, in the way that I preach. So um, maybe he thought I wasn't going to do that enough, and so he made sure I didn't have all my notes. Uh, let's see how we go. Uh, it's Marathon Sunday today, of course. Uh, any, if, anyone here? Do we have any former marathon runners? Sam K. Just one in the room. Do you know, when we used to meet in the afternoons only when we started the church, we had occasionally, we had people who ran the marathon in the morning and came to church in the afternoon. I mean, that is serious commitment. Anyway, my daughter Vicky is running the marathon today. Uh, so um, she's about two hour, hour and a half in at this point in time. And uh, I have never been as close to somebody who's training for a marathon. I didn't realize what a big deal it was. I mean, I sort of, I know lots of people who've done it. Gab is looking at me like David, thick skin, numbskull. I know it's amazing, isn't it? 26 miles and just the training that she's done has been ab very, very focused. All her friends are saying, we can't wait till you finish the marathon so we can have real Vicky back who stays up at night and does things like that. So we've been watching, watching cheering her on. She actually said, uh, would Philippa come and watch the f beginning of the race, which is why Philippa's not here this morning. Uh, I'm going to be heading over to watch her at the end of the race uh, later on. So excited for that. One of the reasons I mention that is that today's sermon is really part one of two. Uh, I get to do the first one today. Philip is going to pick up some of these themes in three weeks' time, and we'll do the other side. Philip will actually particularly be focusing on the vision that God is developing amongst us as we're now two services that have come together to form a new service. And what that means in terms of being a garden at the heart of the city. And what that means to be a place of refreshing and strength and healing and companionship and love and fellowship. And I won't preach Philippa's sermon now, but all those sorts of things that God is calling us to be uh, together, uh, whether we're here in person or whether we're joining us on live stream this morning as well. I should have said welcome to you guys. Uh, as well. This morning, I want to ask a slightly different question. I want to ask, what is it that the Spirit might be saying to us as a community, given this weird 18 months that we've been through? And I don't need to elaborate too much on that. We'll talk, I'll come back to it in a few minutes. But given all the weirdness and all the changes, what is it that God wants of us? What's he saying uh, to us at this point in time, and I want to uh, base it all in the verses that Joe has read to us. In fact, I want to start just a few verses before. Uh, and uh, it's always helpful, and it's always important, and I hope you're always thinking, when you're thinking of big life decisions, or what is God saying to you, I hope you're always thinking, hang on, what's the Bible got to say about this? It's one of the reasons we've been given a Bible, is it's meant to be a, a light to our feet. It's meant to light up our path. And so I want to base it all in that. Let me just give you the few verses before the verses we got to, which essentially was an angel appearing to Gideon. The chapter starts with the Midianites, a powerful eastern tribe who have uh, flooded into the, the fertile plains uh, that the Israelites are in, and they've intimidated, they've beaten, they've triumphed over the Israelites. Uh, they're now fill the fertile area. The Israelites are up in the mountain caves and the clefts in the rock, and they're busy, really just focused on survival. We're told that whenever the, whenever the Israelites thought about coming down or planting crops, 
no supermarkets then. This is an agricultural uh, economy. Whenever they think of, of planting crops, it says the Midianites appeared like locusts. I don't know how many of us have been uh, in an environment where we've seen a storm of locusts. They literally blot out the sky. Well, imagine the Israelites up in the mountain heights, looking down on the plains, and all they can see is Midianites everywhere. Not only are they everywhere, but they take the crops. They essentially take their food for the next uh, six or 12 months. We're told they ruin the crops. They take all the livestock, and we're told they do not spare a single living thing. They literally come, and they take this place, and they just make it bare. And unsurprisingly, we're told that the power of the Midianites was oppressive for the Israelites. And as I read that, I couldn't help thinking about the last 18 months. Who's found the last 18 months oppressive in one way or another? Well, half of you are holding up your hands, and I think the other half of you would if you were um, maybe in, in a more private space or whatever. Um, in many ways, there are parallels that we can draw between these two things. Our movements have been restricted over the last 18 months, and in many ways they still are. The Israelite movements were restricted. They couldn't come out of their caves. They couldn't come down the mountains. The Israelites feared for their very lives. We, have we, of course, from time to time, maybe particularly earlier on in the pandemic, I guess all of us at one point or another thought, am I going to be okay? The Israelites would have feared for those that were vulnerable in their community, the young and the old. We have all done that. We've spent a lot of time talking about the vulnerable and how we care for them. The Israelites would not have been able to gather in public to worship because of the fear of the Midianites coming down on them. Well, that's been our deal as well. That oftentimes we've not been able to gather together. Thank goodness for Zoom and for live streams. I know they drive us all mad at times, but at least we have been able to stay connected uh, as a result. But we're told that the Midianites... And the effect of them impoverished the Israelites, the people of God. And that word impoverished doesn't just mean that materially they became poor, but it has a, a, a mental or psychological connotation. In other words, they became small in their minds. They stopped asking, how can we expand? How can we flourish? How can we be a blessing? And they simply thought about, how can we survive? How many of us have found ourselves thinking that way over the last 18 months. I just got to get through this week. I just got to get through this month just until lockdown is over. And of course, all of that, that sense of getting small in our minds doesn't just snap back as the numbers start to go the right way or the pandemic seems to recede at least for the moment. So I think there's a lot of parallels here between the effect of the Midianites on the people of God in Judges chapter 6 and the effects of a pandemic on us here in the 21st century. And certainly it means that we're looking and asking, how does God work in challenging times? These are challenging times, still challenging times. So I want to just draw a number of pointers from this in terms of how God works in challenging times. We are then going to take this chapter and probably the next couple on Wednesday evenings over the next, uh, right through until Christmas as we gather together and uh, we will draw a lot more out of this. So if at any point during this morning you think, David, slow down, you're not going into enough depth on that point, have no fear. 
because I will not be doing that, but we'll be doing it together. We're going to keep teaching no more than 12 minutes. That's what I'm telling everyone who gets to teach on Wednesdays. No more than 12 minutes on your feet, and then we'll get into groups and we'll talk about this and we'll apply it and we'll pray and so on uh, together. So what happens? Well, the first thing that happens and this is invariably the case when things get really difficult, is the people pray. We all, I mean, even people who aren't sure whether God, God exists, pray when they're in trouble. Help God. And this is what the people of God do here. They go, help us. We are at our wits end. You may have felt like that over the last 18 months. Help me, God, I am at my absolute wit's end. And there are two things that happen when we pray. And the first thing is God starts to work in your and my heart. I've often thought that I pray to try and get God to do something and it ends up with me doing something. Because though I might be thinking, am I going to change God? I realize theologically that's a dodgy statement, but you understand what I'm trying to say there. I find that God changes me when I start to pray. So he gets us praying Firstly, to change our hearts, and secondly, in order that he prepares to act. Just as it says in Daniel, that when Daniel prayed, he prayed for 21 days and nothing had happened. <laughs> Who's had that experience? So he prays for three weeks, nothing happens, and then an angel comes and says, on the very day that you started to pray, I was released from heaven to come to you. And then there's a picture of a, a spiritual battle that happens in the heavens. Now, there's much that could be said that we won't get to say this morning about that. But listen, when you pray, God hears you straight away, and he often he releases the answer, even if it takes some time. It's another reason why Wednesdays are going to be so important for us. It's to connect, it's to build community, it's to get to know one another, it's to think about some of these themes, and it's to pray. Because we think this city needs God's people to be strong and vibrant and alive at this point in time, and therefore... We think that, that is, uh, that's one of the most important things that can happen. Here, David transfers seamlessly to his phone. Uh, and uh, then, of course, what happens after that is that not only does God uh, get his people praying, but he answers them in surprising ways. He doesn't appear. He sends an angel. And he doesn't send an angel to the leaders he doesn't send an angel to the soldiers or to the decision makers. He sends an angel to the most unexpected person you could possibly uh, imagine. He sends him to the youngest, smallest person from the smallest clan in the smallest tribe in all Israel. Now, just to say, and this is a cycle that you can follow right throughout history. God's people flourish, then they struggle, and then God calls the most unlikely people to lead and to take the initiative and to get things going again. Now, of course, one of the things about that is it means that every single one of us can be involved. Because most of us here consider ourselves to be the unlikely person. And that is certainly Gideon. Gideon's full of reasons why he shouldn't be, uh, why he shouldn't be involved but God won't have any of them. In fact, Gideon asked two questions. The first question he asked is, are you really with us? Things have been pretty tough recently. 
Now, for some of us, all of us, we've had a pandemic of toughness. Some of us here have been part of a service, the Covent Garden service, that isn't meeting now. And I know for many of you, you would say that has been really tough. And we've lost something that's really precious to us. And we had a lot of people who left the country, literally, at the beginning of the first pandemic. And we've... Now, that's just one example, but I could, looking around the room, I could apply it in different ways as well. And Gideon, if that's essentially what Gideon says. Gideon says, it's been really tough. <laughs> Why would I believe you now that you want to work? Do you know what's fascinating is God doesn't answer the question. He just says, go, I'm sending you. Now, it's not that there aren't times that we need to process those things and work them out. It's very important. But here, where we say, well, look, how do we know you're with it? He says, no, he says, I'm sending you. You go. In other words, that the important thing in that situation, at least, was that Gideon listened and he obeyed. Am I not sending you? And then the, his other question was, well, God, can God really use me? I am the youngest person in the smallest clan of the smallest tribe. And God's approach, of course, is very different. He's not interested in our background. He's not interested in the family that we've come from. He simply sees us as the person that he has made us to be. And he calls that out. That's the wonderful bit about getting to follow God, is that he knows who we're meant to be, and it's like he calls us out. It's like he gives Joshua and Gideon a name. He calls him, you mighty warrior. And I always imagine that when the angel said, you mighty warrior, to Gideon, Gideon's going, who else is in the room? Who's he talking to? He can't be talking to me. But what the Lord does is he speaks about the very essence of who he is, of who you are, and he calls that out. And he says, come and be that person. So at times of darkness, at times of challenge, he picks the most unusual people. And then he puts his finger on the very core of who he's made them to be. And he says, come on, be that person. Live out that. And the other thing that he does along with that is he gives promises. He gives promises to people. That's how Hebrews describes what happens with Gideon here. In Hebrews 11 verse 33, it says that through faith, Gideon conquered kingdoms and gained what was promised. And that's exactly the way in which God gets things done all, all the way through Scripture, but God gets things done today. He puts promises in our hearts, and then he says, now go and get the promise. We literally in the Old Testament have a land called the promised land. And for the Israelites, they spent generations actually going to get the promise. Now, sometimes God keeps promises to us together. I trust that he will underline and emphasize and strengthen promises on Wednesday nights as we gather together. So that we'll be able to say as a community, God has given us some things that we're now to go and get. But I'm sure that for many of us in this room, we have things in our hearts too. That just as God says of Gideon that he gained what was promised, what are the things that he's given you? I shared, I don't know, a few weeks ago, 
a, a fresh promise that God's given to me recently. It's been through the oddest set of circumstances. But as some of you know, recently Philip and I have moved and we found a new baker's. And we found this amazing seeded sourdough loaf. It's just fantastic. And so I've started as part of, uh, part of my morning routine is I head to the baker's and I get a, grab a loaf. After I've been a couple of times, they said, would you like a loyalty card? Well, so I'm big on loyalty cards. I'm like, yep, nine loaves, tenth one free. Got to do this. And then I find when I go, they're very generous with their stamps. You know, it's three stamps. A few times it was six stamps. One loaf, six stamps. Good deal. So I'm getting these loaves. I'm doing rather nicely out of this and getting these fantastic pieces of bread. And then occasionally two people, they'll give me one on the house. So I'm like, why? And I used to go back and say, these guys, their generosity is extraordinary. Then just before we went on holiday, I came on a Saturday and the guy saw me coming. One guy. And he'd already wrapped up a seeded sourdough before I got there. And I went in and he said, there you go, seeded sourdough on the house. I said, well, thank you. But I said, it's the weekend. On the weekend, I need two loaves. I've got people coming for breakfast and I need two loaves. And I said, so, and I got out my loyalty card. Here's the payment for the second one. Nine loaves. He said, no, keep your card. Here's another one on the house. I know. So I, I went home and I said, here's what I've got. And then we went on holiday. And I came back, and it was a Monday morning, uh, back from holiday. And I went in. It was a guy I'd never seen before. And he looked at me, and he wrapped up the seeded sado. He handed it over, and he actually said, it was the end of August, but he said, happy Christmas and happy New Year. It's on the house. Isn't that extraordinary? And this isn't just a local. This is actually a bigger chain, there's a number of them around London. Some of you cynics said to me last time, they said, oh, we thought it was the local guy just trying to get your business. But I went, I went back from it all. It was so extraordinary and so unusual. I went back thinking, actually, after the, the, that weekend before holiday, I thought, I think God's speaking to me. And I think he's promising me something for this next season. He's promising me that he will give me, he will provide for me everything that I need everything that I need. And I felt like it was a promise, not just for me, but it was a promise for us. It was a promise for this church. Wherever he takes us, whatever the challenges we, fear, we face at this point in time, he'll give us everything that we need. Now, I appreciate that's an unusual experience. More often for me, promises have come when I've prayed. I remember before we started the church, someone prophesying as some of us worship together, God will change the skyline of this city. It was the London Eye was a new thing on the skyline of London. Just like the, just like the London Eye has been placed there. So I will do things through this church which will change the skyline. I thought, that's, I thought that's both ridiculous and amazing all at once. That's how you feel about promises. They're ridiculous and they're amazing. But I've held on to it and I've prayed for it ever since. And when God said to Gideon, he said, I'm going to take you and you're going to slay the Midianites. It was like this promise, which he then had to, I wonder what the promises are for us as individuals. And I wonder what the promises are that God will give us together in this new season. And then that he will teach us to, to go in and to inherit. So we, they prayed. 
the most unlikely person gets calling. Then he finds he's given promises that he wasn't expecting to get. And the result of it all is that he says, I'm available to you. I'm happy. I'm happy to be in on this. He worships. He puts an offering together, which, of course, with food so short at the time, would have probably been everything he had. It's certainly generous. It's goat, it's broth, it's bread. And we're told this in verse 21, that then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff that was in his hand and fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. What's happened here? Gideon has made himself available in worship. Here's a sacrifice as equivalent of us singing, giving a sacrifice of our hearts this morning. And what happens? God sends fire. What does that fire represent? Well, when we looked at Romans 12 in the summer, one of the phrases that Paul uh, refers to and that we looked at was to be fervent in the spirit. In other words, it's like being, it's like being red hot. It's like the angel who said to the church at Laodicea, because you're lukewarm, you're not hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I remember reading that for the first time as a teenager and just being shocked by it. I knew I was lukewarm at the time, and I thought, you would rather I was cold than lukewarm? And he just said, cold or hot, I don't like this lukewarm thing. Now, lukewarm, when it comes to faith, is actually very in at the moment in our culture. Faith is fine as long as you don't fit it too strongly. Faith is fine as long as you don't take it too seriously. Faith is fine as long as you have an added, as an add-on to your life, not as the thing around which life centers. And yet, actually, you'll find that nowhere in the Bible. Well, the only place you'll find it is where the angel says, if you're like that, I will have nothing to do with you. And within 70 years of those verses being written in Revelation, the church in Laodicea ceased to exist. And so for Gideon, he's like, I come to worship, and the fire comes, and it makes him fervent. It makes him fervent. Now, this isn't just something. That sort of fervency, it literally means to boil or to seethe with the Spirit. Now, that's not something that you or I can just switch on. I can't suddenly decide to boil. Or we say it's probably not a very attractive thing. But I can say, God, would you come and change my heart? I'd be red hot for you. And what happens when that happens is that the people of God go into action. You see lots of examples of this actually in the book of Judges. Here's what it says a couple of chapters earlier. The spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. Othniel was one of the judges so that he became Israel's judge and did what? He went to war. In other words, he acted and gave himself with energy and with passion for God's purposes. Brothers and sisters, Christchurch London Central Service, if there's ever a time for us to give ourselves to God and to one another for his purposes in the city, I want to suggest it's right now. And I want to suggest that that's something that's not just worked by you and I giving ourselves to it, though that's important, but by opening our hearts and there'll be an opportunity in just a few minutes at the end and we'll say, Lord, would you come and would you make us fervent in your spirit? A radically obedient individual is worth more than an army 
of lukewarm men and women. A radically obedient individual is worth much more than an army of lukewarm men and women. Final thing. God then, once he had called Gideon and Gideon had given himself and the fire of God had come upon him, God then says, now I want to deal with the rest of my people. He's still not bothered about the Midianites, hasn't even got to them in this chapter. He says, first, I want to renew my people. God goes to the heart of the problem because what, God, what Gideon's family have done is they've begun to worship the very gods that the Midianites are worshipping. I mean, how crazy is that? The Midianites have dominated them, and because of their strength, they've gone, we'll give up on God and we'll worship the Midianite gods, Baal and Asherah. So here's what Gideon's told. He said, go to your father's house, which he does at night, because this, can blow, this could blow up his whole family. Go to your father's house, take the Baal altar. Now, the symbol of Baal is a bull, which is important. We'll come back to that in a sec. And take down the Asherah pole. Then he says, build an altar to God and put a bull on it. Why is he putting a bull on the altar? To declare that the Baal altar is now finished with. This is going to go up in fire to God. The fire has come down and now it's going back up. The fire comes down to strengthen Gideon and Gideon then takes it back by saying, we will not worship the things that our culture is worshipping. We'll only worship you. So the, the bull goes on the altar and where's the firewood come from? It comes from the Asherah pole that is chopped up and then used as firewood. So Gideon goes right to the heart of his culture and burns up the things that his culture have worshipped. Now, I want to suggest that over the last 18 months, it is very easy for God's people to begin to worship, by which I mean give ourselves, treat as ultimate rather than secondary things, some of the very things that have become strong in this culture as a whole. And I just want to suggest as, we, as I come into land, three things which I think could function like a Baal or an Ashtoreth pole, something we can give ourselves to. The first, the first of these is anxiety. We've all been anxious these last 18 months, of course. In fact, we see and we hear people talk about this now as an age of anxiety. Anxious for ourselves, anxious for our loved ones, anxious for our businesses. And of course, that is un entirely understandable. It's resulted in an emotional fragility in our culture that has certainly never existed before in my lifetime. Now, what does Jesus have to say about anxiety? I can, I'm sure that for some of you, you're like, but hasn't anxiety been important recently? Here's what I'd say. Here's what I think Jesus would say. Is I think he would always say, be careful and be responsible, but anxiety leads, makes cowards of us all. Here's what Jesus says, or here's what the Bible says about anxiety. Paul to the Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, anything except pandemics. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Please hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. 
Care, responsibility is very important. Anxiety is not a fruit of the Spirit. If we're to be distinctively different, I want to suggest that matters. Cast all your anxiety on him, says Peter, for he cares for you. Where am I going to trust? My own caution or his provision and safety? Cast all your anxiety on him. Literally, I think of that as throw your burdens on the floor and then trust him. And that might be for those of us that particularly struggle with anxiety, and I realize it can, it can be just a, a powerful thing in our lives. But for those of us like that, you may want to, when we stand to worship or pray, literally, sort of mentally, throw your anxieties on the floor. Cast them on the, and then give yourself to Jesus. What did Jesus say? In a storm, in a boat, with professional fishermen who understood this storm could kill them. He stood up and he said to them, why are you so afraid? <laughs> Imagine Peter going, it's really rather obvious why I'm afraid. I could die. I know. I'm a professional. Jesus said, whatever, no fear. Jesus says, do not fear more often than any other phrase in the Gospels. So I want to suggest, if we are to bring down Baal altars and chop down Asherah poles and build an altar to the Lord, they're not silliness, have nothing to do with silliness. I'm sure we could find a verse for that as well and teach on that. Nothing to do with silliness, but not to be anxious is important for us right now to be distinctive. That's the first thing. The second thing is passivity. The second thing is passivity. It's easy to become trapped in inactivity. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he said, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of what? Every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Well, it's felt as if the days are evil, often days, over the last 18 months, hasn't it? What do you do when the days are evil? Do you just go and hide in your cave? Hide in the cleft in the rock? Wait for it all to pass? Wait for the Midianites to get bored and go off somewhere else? Whilst you shrivel and there is no demonstration of God and his goodness in the land? No. Paul says, even when the days are evil, find ways to make the most of them. It may be prayer. It may be relationships. It may be plans and dreams for the future. It may be study. It may be a thousand different things, but make the most of every day. And I know what it's like. I remember the first days that I went out after lockdowns, and my limbs, litched both psychologically and physically, felt flaccid and weak. I thought, really, I'm going to a meeting in person. And so, again, I, I'm only, what's important is our spirits here rather than anything else. You understand what I'm saying. I watched a clip from Dead's Poets Society as I was thinking about this. I don't know how many of you remember that film with Robin Williams. Tried to persuade Philippa to watch it last night. She didn't want to, so uh, I've still got that to look forward to again. Uh, but he takes, he's a teacher and he takes this class of bright, talented pupils and he says to them, and they're like in their middle, late teens, he's saying, he's saying, it won't be long, and his phrase is, before your, worm, uh, before your food for the worms. In other words, before life has just gone. 
And he gets them to look at the photographs in the hallways of all the former pupils. He said, look, they're just like you. Their eyes shining with hope. They look strong. They look confident. And now he said they're gone. And of course, you know, as you've seen the film, he says, seize the day. I think Apostle Paul would have said just the same. When the days are evil, make the most of every opportunity. Seize the day. And so this is not a moment for inactivity. It's a moment for wisdom. It's a moment for judging what that means and how we do that, of course. But it's a moment for action, as well as a moment to be free from anxiety. And finally, it's a moment for us to ensure that we're overcoming division. That we're overcoming division. That's the third thing which has been big in our culture over these last 18 months. I realized before then as well, but people have become divided over so many different things. And it's been so much of a problem in our society that a friend of mine has actually started a business on helping people come together in polarized times. He started it now in four different nations. And he's like, you know, he said, I just, there's so many people who want our help. Now, we haven't got time to unpack all of this, and we could spend hours on this, but simply to say this, the reason Jesus says that people are to know that we're his disciples was why? What was it? People will know you're my disciples because you, because you love one another. And I want to suggest we've got this wonderful opportunity in this service right now to learn to love one another at a whole deeper level cross-generationally, with different races, with different ethnicities, with different backgrounds. So much that the scripture says about this, but it says practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Be with people in this service, have them in your house, take them out for coffee or a sandwich or a slap-up meal, whatever your thing is. But do it with people you don't know or you wouldn't normally be with. One of the reasons that we want to, we're setting tables out on a Wednesday evening is because we want to eat together. As one friend of mine used to say, I've never forgotten it, he said, open mouth, open heart. Open mouth, open heart. When you eat together, you just get connected in fresh and new ways. And I want to encourage us. So come if you possibly can. We will have a live stream for those of you that can't. We understand that everybody can come. But if you can, and the live stream will start at 7.30, but come at 6.30 or as soon afterwards as you can. There's a, an abundance of places you can pick up some food on the way. Come, bring food, open heart, open mouth. Care for the vulnerable. Let's learn to care for the vulnerable amongst us, to love everyone and not to give up meeting with one another. And so in loads of practical ways, we can show a very different spirit, not a polarized community, but a deeply loving, serving, honoring, respecting community. So I want to suggest, I've said a lot, I've preached longer than I would normally do. But that God sets his people praying, then he speaks to the most unlikely people and he draws them. And he puts promises in the heart. He says, go and inherit those. Go get those promises. They result by opening their lives and their hearts in worship. And the fire of God comes that they would be fervent. And then he says, make sure before you do anything else that my people are distinctive. And I want to suggest today that three ways we can do that is by learning to be not anxious, not passive, and not polarized. I'm sure I should be stating all three of those in the positive. 
that we should be peaceful and that we should be uh, action-orientated and that we should be loving and unified and serving one another. Let's stand together, shall we? Maybe the band could come back, please.